Hello, good evening to Resistance TV here. My name is Sean and I'm going to be your host for this evening. It's Wednesday, it's seven o'clock and it's the uh, 20th of April. Tonight we've got our resident academic Rod Driver back on with us and he's going to be discussing how the international economic system is rigged to transfer wealth from poor to rich. In the last few years, we've seen, and particularly over COVID, the COVID and pandemic, we've seen a, a massive transfer of wealth from the poorest to the richest in our society. Um, the mainstream commentators and economics textbooks present free trade as a way to help poor countries. However, in the real world, we force poor countries to adopt an extreme economic system that is intended to transfer wealth from poor countries to the richer countries. So Rod, um, welcome again tonight. Thank you very much for that introduction. Can you hear uh, me? Am I coming through loud and clear? Uh, you are, yes. I'm not sure whether there might be a little bit of an echo there, actually. I can't hear you, Sean. Oh, right. Have okay. I lost all sound? I can hear can you. you. Can you give me a thumbs up if you can hear me? Okay. I'll make a start. I, can, I can't hear you. Okay. I'll make I'll make a start. Okay. So sorry about that slightly uh, confused uh, moment or two just there. Um, so tonight we're going to talk about how the uh, global economic system is rigged to transfer wealth from poor countries to richer countries. And um, I'm going to give a general presentation, and then I'm going to show how that ties in very directly with events in Russia and uh, Ukraine uh, at the moment, because it's all very important to link these things together to understand the sort of big picture of how the world uh, really works. So I'm going to begin by talking about the state of the world. And what uh, researchers have realized is that actually poverty is everywhere. So just to begin with a few uh, statistics, just a uh, rather shocking statistics, just to show how bad the situation is. So the world's population is just under 8 billion people. Now, over 4 billion of those do not have safe sanitation. And over 2 billion of those do not have access to safe or clean drinking water. So very large populations do not have access to, to safe water and sanitation. And then the smaller groups, about 800 million, suffer from long-term undernourishment. And then a fifth of all children under five suffer from stunted growth. So that's a very large proportion of the world's children. And that has very serious consequences. So each year, approximately six million children and many millions of adults die of easily preventable diseases. And approximately nine million people die of hunger each year. And just to round off this sort of collection of rather depressing uh, sets of data, it's estimated that there are approximately 40 million slaves in the world and 150 million children involved in child labor. And when poverty is really extreme and people become incredibly desperate, then they will resort to selling cocaine or heroin, but also they'll sell sex, they'll sell blood, and in the most extreme examples, they will even sell their organs to earn money in order to survive. So since 1960, the income gap between rich countries and poor countries has pretty much tripled in size. So if you 
most of the time, they will tell you that, um, that developing countries and poor countries are making good progress. But in fact, that's not really true. Now, what's very noticeable is that for many of the problems that are faced in poor countries, uh, there are very simple solutions. So, for example, uh, lots of people get ill and some even die from things like diarrhea. And yet a combination of salt, sugar and water would be a very cheap, easy solution uh, to end that problem worldwide. And there's plenty of food in the world, but the problem is distribution, that people don't have enough money to buy that food. So compared to wars and things, it would be fair to say that poverty and inequality are the real weapons of mass destruction. They cause death and misery on a far, far greater scale than anything uh, military that we, we might discuss. Now, there's been a great debate in the last few years about the state of the world. Many mainstream commentators have said, hey, look, if we count the number of people earning less than, and they use a very specific figure of $1.90 per day, then the number's gone down and down and down. And so the economic system must be brilliant. But in fact, various economists have said, hang on a minute, that $1.90 figure is completely irrelevant. If you want to measure poverty, you've got to look at much, much higher numbers, something like $7 a day. And when you do that, you start to find that the true number of people in poverty is closer to the number of people that, to, that don't have access to the, the basic water and um, um, sanitation provisions that I was talking about at the beginning. And that would be about 4 billion people. So about half the world's population are living in very serious conditions of poverty. Now, one or two people from uh, non-government organizations have been criticizing the global economic system for many years. But in the year 2002, there was uh, a groundbreaking book written by a writer called Joseph Stiglitz. Now, he was the former chief economist to the World Bank. So he was a, a mainstream insider. And he wrote this book called Globalization and Its Discontents, where he explained how the economic systems that we force upon poor countries are actually making things worse and worse uh, in those countries. And the policies that are recommended are often labeled shock therapy because they have such negative consequences for many people in those countries. So we're going to talk about the three main policies that are part of shock therapy and why they have such disastrous effects uh, for the rest of the presentation. So uh, the system we're talking about, some people call it neoliberalism, some people call it bloodsucker capitalism. But the main point, as I've discussed in previous presentations, is that the focus is on corporate profit, irrespective of the downsides this has for the vast majority of people uh, in these countries. And in fact, there's a very good economist at Cambridge. His name is Hajun Chang, who's written some mainstream books that are very easy to understand for ordinary people. And he's pointed out that the policies that we're forcing poor countries to adopt are very different from the, all the policies that have been used by advanced nations to become advanced nations uh, in the past. So the first policy that is part of shock therapy, uh, some of you will have heard of it, is called austerity. We've, we were doing it here for a decade or so after the 2008 financial crisis. So many countries have been doing it. When it's applied in poor countries, it means that teachers, doctors and nurses get sacked, wages are cut, subsidies to the poor are decreased. Now, in a country like Britain, we have social safety nets. So 
we will make sure that on the whole, people don't suffer too severely from these policies. But in poor countries, there are no social safety nets. So actually, people die. People have very, very serious problems. And there's no evidence anywhere at all, actually, that austerity solves any country's problems. It's not actually about a kind of economic policy to make things better in poor countries. It's actually a set of policies that I'll explain what they do uh, towards the end. So the second set of policies is called privatization. So again, some of you will be aware that there's a gradual privatization of the healthcare system in Britain, and uh, we've privatized energy systems and water systems and so on. So that's the idea, and this has been carried out in poor countries for many years. So water, healthcare, energy, electricity, and so on. And it's presented as making these systems more efficient. But in fact, all the research evidence says it has nothing to do with efficiency. It's about taking something that already exists and provides a service to the public, and then handing it over into private hands to enrich a tiny number of rich, powerful, well-connected people. And there have been a number of studies on some um, examples of this. So famously in Bolivia in the year 2000, their water system had been privatized. Uh, an American company called Bechtel had uh, taken control of it. There were massive protests because the poorest people were being cut off from their water supply. And what poor people need more than anything is clean, easily available uh, water. And eventually the protests got so extreme that Bechtel was forced to leave the country and the people of Bolivia were able to take back control of their water supply. Similarly, in South Africa, where the water system was privatized, they actually saw outbreaks of diseases such as cholera that they thought had been eradicated again because they put prices up and poor people couldn't afford the water and so on. So austerity is deliberately intended to decrease the quality of public services. And then the government can step in and say, oh, well, let's just privatize them and that'll make them much, much better. Well, of course, they're not intending to make them better. They've wrecked them in the first place. Now they want to hand them over to their privately, uh, into private hands, so hand them over to their cronies to extract wealth indefinitely into the future. So austerity and privatization are the first two parts. Those are linked. And then the final thing to talk about is what's called free trade. So economists use the term liberalization. So this is about, about removing controls and removing laws that uh, limit the flows of money in and out of a country, but also limit what companies can do. And in fact, another insider, a guy called Morris Miller, who was the former executive director of the World Bank, he, he admitted, not since the conquistadors plundered Latin America has the world experienced a flow of wealth from poor countries to rich in the direction we see today. So multiple insiders are admitting that these policies don't work and that actually these policies are not intended to help poor people or poor countries. They're intended to help the rich and so on. So this economic exploitation is led by America. They're the ones who dominate this system. But Britain, Europe, Australia, Canada and other rich countries all benefit from these policies. So the total transfer of wealth from poor countries to rich is estimated at just over two trillion dollars per year. So that's many, many times greater than the aid budget uh, and so on. So enormous transfer of wealth. So in terms of understanding free trade, which is possibly the, 
the most important of the three uh, policies that gets talked about. I often explain to people that the opposite of free trade is properly regulated trade. So when companies are trying to persuade their governments to do free trade, what they want is to remove the regulation of poisonous chemicals, to remove the regulations of employment standards so that they can pay people less and less, employ them for more and more hours on lower and lower standards. So big companies want less and less regulation. So I say that the proper term for what is labelled free trade is forced trade. And I think free trade is one of the great propaganda terms. Hey, it sounds wonderful. How could anybody possibly object to the idea of free trade and level playing fields? But in fact, it's a highly exploitative system that forces countries to do what big companies want to do. So there's a number of examples of this. And Hajin Chang has written about this in, in some detail. So one of the things that many advanced nations did years ago was they protected their developing industries from overseas competition. But now, when a poor country is forced to end that protection for their developing industries, overseas competitors, very advanced companies from the West, go in and they dominate that sector of the market and the, uh, the developing industries from the poor country are put out of business almost overnight. So the governments of poor countries are forced to end what are called subsidies and tariffs. I won't uh, worry too much about the technical uh, definitions of these, but anything to assist developing industries, they have to end. And yet advanced nations such as Taiwan and South Korea and Europe and America still use subsidies and tariffs to a huge extent to assist their companies. So it's really bizarre that internationally, Poor countries are not allowed to use these techniques, and yet rich countries are still using them. So as I've pointed out in a number of earlier presentations, it's impossible to create a level playing field in trade when you start with extreme inequality. Big companies have enormous advantages. They will always win in a direct competition with smaller um, businesses. So what happens is the local industry gets destroyed. So sometimes this is called deindustrialization, which is the opposite of what poor countries need to do if they ever want to be advanced industrialized uh, nations. So there have been lots and lots of case studies uh, looking at what happens when poor countries open up their markets to overseas competition. So, for example, one case study looked at Jamaica and their milk industry was destroyed overnight because subsidized powdered imported milk was much cheaper. So lots of people in that industry lose their jobs and that industry ceases to exist in that country. In the Ivory Coast, the chemical industry, textiles, cars and the shoe industry were all destroyed, again, almost overnight. In Nigeria, 200,000 people lost their jobs and 35 very large textile mills were closed. And in Haiti, the rice and poultry industries were completely destroyed. And in fact, the Haitian example is quite important because America's goal is to destroy the independence of other countries in terms of being able to produce their own food. By destroying rice and poultry industries in Haiti, Haiti then became dependent on exported food from America. And so food dependency on U.S. exports is a deliberate policy goal of the Americans. So there's a very good writer 
who his name is Michael Chosodovsky, and he's probably written the best book on this subject. And it's called The Globalization of Poverty. And he does case study after case study showing exactly what happens when countries adopt these policies. So in Mexico, between uh, approximately 1980 and 2000, they adopted these policies and the spending power of a typical person dropped to about one quarter of um, uh, their original spending power before they implemented these policies. And you can look at country after country and you'll see this, the same thing. So the economics textbooks say that free trade is win-win, but this is not true. It's about a win for very rich and powerful people and big companies, usually from advanced nations, although sometimes it benefits uh, richer people in poor countries too. But always the losers are the poorer people in both poor countries uh, and frequently rich countries. So a trade agreement it's not really about trade at all. It's about the rights of investors. So free trade policies tend to have the following real purposes. So ignore the textbooks. In the real world, this is the purpose of free trade policies. They allow investors to move money in and out of countries freely. They allow investors and companies to set up very complex international tax structures where they have holding companies and subsidiaries in uh, tax havens and lots of other islands all, all over the world so they can manipulate prices and profits and taxes. They enable companies from advanced nations to extract raw materials in other countries on very unfair terms. They enable companies to sell in other countries, eliminating local production, as I just discussed earlier. And they enable these very powerful companies from advanced nations to access cheap labor in poor countries. Okay, so they have all sorts of very detrimental consequences for ordinary people. Now, the important thing to note is that properly regulated trade works really well. So this is where governments choose not to do austerity, not to do privatization, and they choose to protect their developing industries um, early on. And in fact, there's a great example uh, of this uh, that Hajim Chang writes about in Japan, where if you look at the car company Toyota, when they were uh, in the early stages, if they had opened up their markets, their car markets to competition from America and Europe, Toyota would have been put out of business decades ago. But the Japanese government was able to protect Toyota from overseas competition. It invested, it subsidized, it, it helped protect them. And now Toyota are one of the leading car companies uh, in the world. So if you look at all of the, the countries that have been spectacularly successful since the end of World War II, so that would tend to be South Korea and Taiwan, also Japan, a couple of islands, Hong Kong and Singapore, also the country of Israel, and more recently, China, not one of them has pursued these policies. None of them have done free trade. They've been very selective about where they've done privatization. It's only on their terms. They've never been forced to do it. And on the whole, they have not done austerity. So they've structured their economies in a way that works for them, and it's been incredibly successful. So many poor countries could actually end poverty if they were left to their own devices. And we've seen that even very poor countries, so Cuba would be an example, and the Indian state of Kerala, which has a, a communist government, they've both shown 
that you can have fantastic healthcare services, fantastic education services, and so on. Even if you're a very poor country, you can eliminate uh, poverty. And one of the things that, that many uh, many people are unaware of is that two of the countries that um, that America attacked, that's Iraq and Libya, they were very, very socialist countries. They weren't doing these policies. The governments were investing, protecting industries, industrializing, and so on. And they were setting an example for other countries to say, look, you can become a first world nation. And they had achieved that status just before America and Britain destroyed them. Um, so it's been fairly obvious since about 2008 and the, the financial crisis that these rather extreme policies are being applied more and more forcefully in advanced nations. So we're seeing the steady privatization of the NHS. We've seen austerity. Austerity was carried out in Greece and various other European countries with devastating consequences. And the end result we're seeing in Britain is now millions of people queuing uh, at food banks. Now, these policies are not accidental. This is not just incompetence by our government. These are deliberate policies being made by governments who primarily represent the richest, most powerful people in the country and by uh, they represent big companies. And so they're deliberately implementing policies that are increasing uh, inequality. So the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. <coughs> so there's a great deal of media propaganda about what goes on, particularly in other countries, in terms of why poverty um, is, is so bad in many other countries. So the media over here will blame foreign governments for poverty. They will completely ignore our role economically in reinforcing poverty, but they will also ignore our role in overthrowing governments that might try to avoid um, poverty. And I'm going to talk about that uh, very specifically in a minute in relation to Ukraine and Russia. But before I do that, I should point out there is a consistent problem that in many developing countries, the middle classes love these policies because they get to buy Western consumer goods. They get all the white goods, the fridges, the freezers, the washing machines. They get TVs and computers and mobile phones and stuff. So they love those policies. But what happens is that the white goods industry in each of these countries, it doesn't exist. Either it did exist and it's been destroyed because it can't compete with European and American goods, or it never got developed in the first place because the government of that country had no interest in industrializing the nation. So the rich and the middle class don't really want to examine policies that work for them. They love being surrounded by poverty because they get an army of cheap or what I call slave labor who come and tidy the house, drive them around in their cars and so on. So they're, they're middle class and the rich in poor countries actually like these policies. So when you see the media writing about these policies in the West, they say, oh, well, people in developing countries like these policies because they're looking at things from the perspective of middle class people. But they completely ignore the downsides for the poor in those countries, but also for the long term prospects of those countries in terms of industrialization uh, and so on. OK, so I want to bring this um, up to the present day and say, let's see how this relates to Ukraine and Russia. So some of you will be aware that in Ukraine, there was a coup in 2014 where the Americans uh, helped to overthrow the existing pro-Russian government and installed their, it used to be called a, uh, a puppet dictator. These days we call it a client state. Anyway, once he was installed, 
they have imposed these policies. And in fact, various studies have been done showing that between 2012 and 2016, the standard of living in Ukraine absolutely plummeted following these policies. And in fact, Ukraine is now the poorest country in Europe. So these policies really do have devastating uh, consequences. Now, if we go back a couple of decades to the 1990s, we can also look at what happened when these policies were applied to Russia. And this is very important. So in 1989, the Berlin Wall came down and the group of countries that were called the Soviet Union collapsed. And at the time, America and Europe and our economic advisors tried to force Russia to pursue these extremist policies. Now, of course, they claimed that the idea that this would westernize Russia and everything would be wonderful and living standards would massively uh, increase. In fact, it's estimated that 70 million people in Russia were plunged into poverty because things like the price of bread went through the roof. And in fact, things got so bad that life expectancy in Russia actually decreased in the 1990s by an amount that's almost never seen outside of wartime. Now, older viewers will remember that the mainstream news occasionally used to talk in the 1990s about Russian oligarchs. So these are people who had connections to the Russian government and they became billionaires almost overnight by taking control of major industries like oil and gas and other energy systems and so on. So the set of policies was deliberately intended to enrich a small number of people handing the assets of the state to private hands, but this impoverished very large numbers of people. And in fact, a leading Western economist, a guy called Jeffrey Sachs, who was part of this system, he went over to Russia to advise on doing these policies. And years later, he admitted that he realized these policies were not about helping Russia progress. And these were his own words. It was about finishing off the Cold War. He realized these policies were intended to destroy the Russian economy. So people tend to forget the devastating consequences of these policies to Russian people in the 1990s. And so what happened was that at the end of the 1990s and the beginning of the 21st century, Putin stepped in and he rescued Russia from these policies. Now, the Americans now would love to overthrow Putin and to overthrow the Russian government to repeat this process, to get Russia to westernize its economy all over again, which will have devastating consequences for the poor, but will make a small number of people rich. And Putin and the Russian government and the Russian people really do not want to have to go through this process all over again. So they are very concerned that America's main goal at the moment is to overthrow the Russian government. And watching from the wings, of course, is China, who are well aware that if America ever succeeds in overthrowing the Russian government and implementing these policies again in Russia, one day America may try to do the same to China, try to overthrow the Chinese government to do the same to China. So Russia and China are very actively working together to try to make sure that the, Russia, the Americans are not able to overthrow their governments to destabilize their economies. Okay, I think that's probably a good time to uh, open it up for a general uh, conversation. So far away with any questions or discussion points you might have. 
Thanks very much for that, Rod. Um, we've only got a couple of questions because people have been engrossed, <laughs> as usual, in what you've got to say. Um, it's a lot for people to take in. And, um, you know, I think we'll bring Lizzie in in a second um, and have a chat. She's been talking about an extinction rebellion and jubilee for climate and XR trade unionists um, campaign. So I'm sure she'll be able to tell us a little bit more about that whilst people are trying to think of questions to ask you. Um, Diana Isolis says, uh, we're in the process of being screwed over by our own government's food and farming policy, pushing trade deals, including with the US, while introducing policies that will reduce our own food production. I mean, isn't it time that we became more reliant on our own resources, Rod. Absolutely. So that's a that's a really great point. So in fact, what the Conservative government have been trying to do ever since they sort of dragged us away from Europe is to try and have stronger and stronger ties with America. But it's always America who calls the shots, and it's American companies who uh, their lawyers write these trade deals and so on. They have all the power in these negotiations, and it will. Britain will become more and more like a third world country and the, the poor will be impoverished. There'll be fewer and fewer social safety nets. If the Americans and the British government can get away with it, they will try to privatise as much of the NHS um, as possible. And so more and more of the system will be privatised. More and more ways will be found for a handful of rich, powerful people to extract wealth from the system, and life will get harder and harder for everybody else. So your comment that we should be doing things more independently is absolutely correct. And in fact, one of the things that people sort of started to talk about a little bit once the war with between Russia and Ukraine had started was, hang on a minute, those two countries produce an enormous proportion of the world's food. You know, they are massive exporters, similarly with, with energy and gas and so on, that actually it makes no sense to be completely dependent upon countries when the world is this unstable that, you know, we should be much more uh, self-sufficient, particularly in food, that would be the most important thing, but also in energy. But in as many things as possible, we should be as self-sufficient. And in fact, this concept of self-sufficiently for the last 40 years has kind of been pushed away from the political discussions, but actually it's a really important concept. And the strange thing is, sort of I hinted on, on it in, when I was talking about um, food production being destroyed in poor countries, is that the less independence you have uh, when it comes to food, when it comes to energy, and particularly also when it comes to monetary policy, is that the more you are in danger of being manipulated by powerful external actors, whether it's if it's energy, in theory, Russia could manipulate us. But in practice, what tends to happen more often is that America can manipulate other countries through manipulating the financial system. And some of the uh, some of the viewers will be aware that um, when America was trying to overthrow the Venezuelan government a couple of years ago, Britain played a role in that by trying to steal Venezuela's gold uh, and so on. And so uh, it's very important to be as independent as possible. It's interesting with Venezuela, of course, the conversation has now changed because America is starting to talk openly to Venezuela about uh, energy exports and so on. So the things, things have changed rapidly because of the situation with Russia and Ukraine. And we have to talk about all the sanctions that America are placing on different countries. I can't remember what the exact figure is, but there are 
hundreds, many hundreds of countries in the world that the US have placed sanctions on. And that's going to play a huge role in uh, the, the wealth and uh, of, of the few. And also, um, it, it, it stops the trade. Um, it stops people from being able to, uh, for example, um, I know the farmers are struggling with fertilizer um, this year because a lot of the fertilizer we actually import from Russia. Um, and the the prices have actually they've gone through the roof. So why can't we make our own fertilizer in this country? I'm sure we have the capability to, to do it. Um, and another point, um, my brother keeps a few sheep and every year he has to pay for somebody to shear his sheep and it costs him for them to take the wool away he doesn't make any money from the wool at all and that's the same for the majority of farmers sheep farmers in this country um, because we don't have the mechanisms in this country to be able to clean the wool spin the wool dye the wool um, so it just goes to waste it's such a waste of a product um, and I think that if we could you know bring farmers together to form cooperatives to uh, build a wool mill for example um, then that that product wouldn't go to waste. And I know that I'm a knitter. I do a lot of crocheting. There is a wool shortage because the majority of the wool now comes from China. So it's imported and there is a wool shortage. So it's absolutely madness to me, Rod. So every time I study any aspect of the way the global economy works, it always just leaves me going, well, hang on, this is bonkers. I remember something a while ago saying, well, listen, we export, I don't know if the figure's 50 million chickens every year, and we import 50 million chickens every year. And you just think, why didn't we eat the 50 million chickens that we produce? <laughs> yeah, exactly, like yeah. I don't know if those are the exact figures. and so, But that's, that's the kind of general thing of it. Now, I've never studied the wool industry, but one of the things that people have talked about in relation to kind of energy usage and wasting resources and so on, is that actually we should be thinking of lots of industries in joined up ways. So we should have a wool industry and we should make sure that all of the inputs, so it's the wool in the first place for the sheep, but any dyes and so on, as much as possible, we can produce ourselves, but also anything that's waste or left over and so on can be used in other industries for useful purposes. And so people actually talk about either a circular economy or they talk about a cradle to cradle economy where the idea is nothing is ever wasted. Nothing ever ends up in a landfill and so on that actually we keep reusing, recycling and finding other ways to use things. And it, it's thought about very carefully from the outset. And in fact, in different parts of the world, different groups of people do this. So they actually set up multiple related industries very close to each other. So one factory produces something and the waste from that material goes into the next factory, which is used for something else and so on. And we need to have an altogether more holistic kind of think and discussion about the way we produce stuff. Because one of the th things that I find fascinating is, is that if you listen to any mainstream commentator, and this can be in the in the press or it can be economics lectures, they're always saying, oh, well, big business, free enterprise. It's all incredibly efficient, isn't it? But actually, it's not. No. It's unbelievably inefficient. There's so much waste 
everywhere you look. And the, the thing is, they don't pay for the waste. So um, they, as far as they're concerned, because it doesn't cost them any money, they don't see it as waste. But actually, we, the general public and society, paid a huge, huge price for all of this. So in fact, we need to start saying, listen, we can't just think of one company in isolation by itself and looking at its costs and its profits and its turnover. And so we actually have to start thinking about how that relates to lots of other uh, industries. So we, we need a complete rethink to our entire approach to how we talk about how the economy works. And I always hope that in 100 years' time, when people are having this conversation, they'll say, well, isn't it great that we actually now have an economy that works properly, is efficient, doesn't waste stuff, doesn't need to dig new resources out of the ground because we just take last year's resources that we were using and so on. And they look back at this period in history now and laugh and say, wasn't it ridiculous mm -hmm. the way they used to structure their economy and the way mainstream academics were completely uncritical uh, of the system and journalists were uncritical and so on. So I agree with you entirely about the um, the structure of the, the economy. And then the first thing you mentioned was the thing about sanctions, about how many sanctions America has on other countries. And it is phenomenal. I don't have exact data. I was doing a little bit of studying earlier today, looking at Yemen, which is one of the greatest human rights catastrophes uh, ever, where Saudi Arabia primarily has been destroying Yemen. But actually, they're doing it with British, American and French weapons. So it's it's just as much a part of British and American foreign policy as all the other war crimes that we've committed this century. But uh, one aspect of what's going on in Yemen is that there are sanctions on Yemen. Now, in fact, Yemen, more than anything, needs medicine. It needs assistance. It needs aid and so on. And yet, if you have sanctions, then just like with the sanctions on Iraq in the 1990s, which at one point were described as infanticide, which is the mass scale slaughter of children because so many children died. In fact, so many children are now dying in Yemen because of what's going on there. And we are actively making the situation worse, not just with weapon supplies, but also with sanctions and so on. But actually, these sanctions are a form of warfare by other means. It's economic warfare and it's every bit as devastating as military warfare. And it kills huge numbers of people. And it's really devastating for multiple countries. And so, again, we need to start having a completely different discussion about sanctions. On the whole, nobody should ever be doing sanctions. You know, it's a completely ineffective um, way to go about doing things. And in fact, the study I was looking at today was saying, look, we've examined American sanctions on lots and lots of different countries, right? And it never works. It's never a useful tool to achieve American goals because what actually happens is because the population in any country that's on the receiving end of these sanctions understands that their economy is being decimated by the United States and other countries that do the sanctions, they become more supportive of their leadership. So if the goal of the sanctions was to overthrow the leader, it's actually counterproductive. It doesn't work. Uh, and in fact, we, we saw this with the attempted sanctions on Venezuela a few years ago. The, the people of Venezuela were well aware that the country was in a, in a state partly because of the sanctions. And yet they strongly got behind the leader. They didn't want the leadership overthrown. They wanted the sanctions to end. And the same is true in every country um, you look at. So it's completely counterproductive. Um, from a sort of strategic point of view, and it has immense negative consequences. You know, thousands and thousands of people 
die because of sanctions. And we should consider them to be a very serious human rights abuse. And when America does them or when Britain does them, we should be thinking about how do we prosecute the people who are responsible for these? Because they're taking criminal actions just as bad as any other criminal actions. And we, we need to think in terms of how the law is structured to make sure they cannot impose sanctions in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Diana made a, a very good point. We need artificial fertilizer like a hole in the head. We need organic farming, farming methods. I totally agree with that. And I think that goes alongside what Rob's just, uh, Rod has just been talking about with um, being more sustainable in our farming and our manufacturing. Um, Gaz, can we bring Lizzie in now? Um, I think she's... Uh... Hiya, Lizzie. Yeah. Hiya. Um, Lizzie, um, you put a question on there that you wanted to ask uh, Rod on behalf of uh, Extinction Rebellion. Yes, uh, Extinction Rebellion uh, is a huge platform really now for other people to get involved with the entire system change that we need, that we desperately need. So the question from Extinction Rebellion and Jubilee for Climate and XR trade unionists is, uh, we are holding debates about the Global South climate debt crisis. And would Rod like to come and speak? Well, that's interesting. So it would depend what they want me to uh, to speak about. And in, in fact, when the show finishes, why don't I just stay on an extra minute or two? And if somebody wants to uh, text me at the end and I'll put some contact details uh, in the chat and then they can they can drop me a line and give me more information uh, about it. So the funny thing is, uh, of all the things that I write about, I've never written about climate change. I find it incredibly difficult to actually condense so much information into an easy to understand beginner's guide. You know, it's a big, complex uh, topic. Um, so I, I've never written one yet, but I research it all the time. So I find it absolutely fascinating. Uh, so it depends what they want me to uh, to talk about. So, but there is an interesting point about the the sort of climate change debates. Now, uh, when um, the way you phrased the question was that they're the people involved at extinction extinction rebellion are having broader conversations about how to change the whole system, and I think that's a good thing because when uh, I was first aware about what was going on in terms of climate change debates, it was very focused on the climate change and it wasn't linking in to any of the other topics that I talk about. And my view has always been, we'll never solve climate change if we don't engage with all the other things that I talk about, about corporate power, corporate influence over governments and so on, that we actually have to have a joined up approach to this and say, it's another aspect of the system and we've got to look at what's underpinning the system and so on. So it would be great uh, for me to start having conversations with them. Exactly. And uh, that brings me to the point of system change lies at the base of everything. I was having a, a conversation with somebody today about the fact that um, I've been asked to go on this show. And what did I want to talk about? Did I want to talk about saving the NHS? Did I want to talk about uh, the housing crisis? Did I want to talk about the debt crisis? Did I want to talk about the fuel crisis? And I said, no, what I want to talk about is system change, which underpins everything. And Extinction Rebellion do provide that platform now, whereby um, Insulate Britain, for example, was, was just a small group of activists, really, considerably small, 
that decided they would disrupt everybody's daily life to get across the fact that our government doesn't insulate our properties, our homes, our houses. And um, that brought up a, a little byproduct of that um, all the council houses in London are insulated. So they might be insulated where it causes death, like Grenfell, but they are insulated. And um, so it became, it, beca it, it drew in Black Lives Matter. So they came in with their whole talk about racism in this country and other countries, of course, against people. And then that developed into a conversation about the global South debt crisis. That drew in the trade unions about the racism within trade unions and the fact that the trade unions weren't thinking about green jobs uh, to do with the climate crisis and to keep workers in work and reusing or renegotiating their skills. So it just it became an avalanche of conversations and debates. And I think it's I haven't got the exact dates because because of technical difficulties, I'm speaking on my phone and working on my laptop. So I can't use either to access the dates for for these debates. But I, I would say that everybody who's at all interested in changing the system has to be part of this debate. For whatever your niche uh, subject is, you have a part to play. That's that's a really good point. I'm really glad you're sort of trying to set that up because one of the things that's frustrated me over the years is that I've actually tried to make contact with various NGOs. You know, it could be Greenpeace and, and all the others and so on. And I said, listen, although you're only campaigning about this, this and this, in fact, it's linked to all of these other topics. And if only you would get together with the other NGOs, you've got a mass base of millions of people and you would have some power and influence. And you could really yeah. start having some serious conversations about how to change the system. And yet, up until now, they haven't wanted to do that. So perhaps you're you're managing to kind of just, just break down a few barriers and get people thinking that actually we do need to think more holistically and join the dots and so on. Yeah, well, I think I think we do. Uh, and, and the Resist Party, which started this broadcast, Chris Williamson's resistance movement, is now naming its party. I don't know if I'm breaking any rules by announcing this. Um, it's calling itself, it's, it's being voted on, and it's calling itself system change because we really need to get that term into people's heads. We really need to empower people to speak out on their preferred subjects that they're already knowledgeable about. Everybody has some talent or skill they can bring to the table, don't they, Rod? Absolutely, they do. And in fact, I'm, I'm so glad we've sort of taken the, the conversation in this direction because there's something that's really important to mention at this point, and that is the people with real power. So we're talking about the 1%. In fact, we're talking about less than 1%. It's, you know, one-tenth of 1%. The real rich, powerful people. They are extraordinarily good at manipulating the rest of us to make us argue among ourselves. Yeah. You've got the gay rights people arguing with the trans rights people all the time. You know, they should really be working together, but they're arguing all the time. And then you've got the trade unions 
who are starting to say, oh, we're not going to pay any attention to you if you're not vaccinated and, and so on. And the, the whole COVID thing became a way that yeah. vaccinated people tarred unvaccinated people as the enemy. You know, but they're not the enemy, you know. We're all working on this together. The only real enemy that everybody should think about is the people who create the system, the super rich and the powerful. And we need to take power away from them. And in order to do that, we all have to work together and we have to stop arguing among ourselves. Absolutely, Rod. Yeah, I mean, we we call this identity politics, don't we? And and in my opinion, it's a huge capitalist um, construct um, to to divide us. And we've got to think of this. It's a class war. This is a class war um, between us working class, ordinary people and the people at the top who want all the power and all the money. And we've got to change the system completely uh, from top to bottom to be in order for us to get our lives back in some kind of order because we can see how I don't know about you but I I could just feel such huge changes happening in the world at the moment not just with Ukraine and Russia but the economy um, the uh, you know digital currency um, there's all sorts of things going on at the moment and it's really hard to keep up with it but in the meantime we're still arguing amongst ourselves about really silly things and uh, yeah you're quite right Rod we've got to stop doing that. There there was a good example this afternoon actually so my my wife uh, she perhaps spends a bit too much time listening to me so every now now and again she'll put out a tweet or something which says you know we can't condemn Russia and Putin simply as the as the cartoon character bad guys and so on. That when we're looking at what's going on in between Russia and Ukraine, we have to have a, a much more complex, nuanced understanding of the world and recognize uh, all the other factors that are involved. And immediately other members of her union started writing back and saying, Oh, you're a pro-Russian, you're this, you're that. And again, arguing among themselves about something yeah. that actually, you know, they should just put to one side and say, Let's focus on the big picture stuff, which is the mm-hmm. is the one percent. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think that was it on the questions, wasn't it? I, I'm not sure if there were any more, Sean. Um, Jonathan Cooper dropped a question saying, "How do we re? How do we be regenerative while resisting the Western Troika?" I think that's he's termed that really well, actually. Rather than being sustainable, we should be regenerative. I think that's that's a great term to use. So I'm not very familiar with the term regenerative, so I'd need to to know more about what he's meaning uh, with I that. Think- Talking about that, like you were touched on before about recycling and you know not having so much waste, um, you know using our byproducts for other means. I think that's what he means by regenerative. And, and the Western Troika. If you could explain that for me, please, Sean. Um, the Western Troika. I I think he's probably talking about the people who control the money. So the Troika oh. I see is people like the IMF. I was thinking the Trilateral Commission, uh, and then I thought, well, no, not quite that. Well, the IMF, the World Bank, um, a few years ago, they brought out something called the Green Bank, and they gave subsidies to to companies that would produce uh, regenerative and reusable energy 
etc uh, and propositions of that kind recycling projects and all these kinds of things and um as soon as people borrowed the money from the green bank or and got assisted grants you know better sort of borrowing money at zero interest you know as soon as they got everybody in in their clutches they started charging interest and then they opened up the green bank to commercial interests so it all became commercialized and commercialized and you know they they are very clever they are very strategic and they know what exactly what they're doing they can spend billions of dollars pounds whatever to to discover how to screw you next so you know it's very hard unless we all come together and that's what they're terrified of we were talking today about um why don't we ever see jeremy corbyn's speeches broadcast anywhere we never have have we really since the very beginning of his leadership of the labor party let alone now that he's um pre prescribed and almost um, and I said it's because they're terrified of him, because he he incited people to rise up and start speaking out, didn't he? And get involved and get involved. So I would say every time someone tries to say, oh, don't speak to them because they've got a different idea to me. Say, no, I'm going to speak to everybody. And unless we all come together. We all we're all doomed, aren't we? We're all doomed. <laughs> he said that. We're doomed. That's our me. We're doomed. <laughs> we're doomed. <laughs> I, I think somebody just put a really interesting comment up. Uh, I think one of you two probably typed it up so we could all see it about the old world is dying. Um, and I think it's really interesting that sometimes if you look at the situation locally, that um, the idea of finding a proper kind of left wing political party at the moment in the UK seems hopeless. And I think they feel the same way in America. But if you look at the big picture, if you look at the way Russia and China are successfully resisting US imperialism, yeah, I'm not sure if people are aware that America has just carried out yet another coup in Pakistan and yeah. overthrown Imran Khan because yeah. he wanted closer links with uh, Russia and China. But he wanted wheat, didn't he, to feed his people? Uh, and well, now they haven't got any wheat. There's, there's a number of sort of things that, that he was trying to do. One of the things, as well as the links with Russia and China, was to uh, get out of international agreements that allowed big companies to sue his government for billions yeah. and billions of, um, of uh, I don't know what the Pakistan currency is, actually, but what of their currency is. Um, and he was trying to get out of that. And so there's been another coup. This is a sign that America is really getting quite desperate in relation to the shift in terms of the balance of power moving over towards Asia and China and Russia and so on. So although things might look hopeless in the short term in the UK, I think there's more and more people trying to find out about what's going on in the world, wanting change, recognising that the system we have is completely uh, inadequate and that we can do better. And there are forces in, the, in, in Asia that actually... Would might help us to bring about um, that that change. So, it it uh, comes uh, back to what you were saying, Rod. Don't watch, listen, or read mainstream media because 
<clears throat> because we're being lied to every single day by them. The yes, they'll let a few little truths slip by, but generally, um, the only ones that now you might be able to trust a little bit more is Channel 4. And you know why that is? Because they're being currently being screwed by the government and being sold off to profiteer from. So, you know, uh, unless and they're ordinary people, really, the people who work at those at those network buildings, the cameramen, the, the hosts, they're all ordinary people, just the same as us. And they can see as well that whatever bullshit they might be putting out on their camera, they actually know the situation that ordinary people are living in. They're trying to rent a rent a one bedroom flat for £1,500 a month in London, you know. So people people are there. It, it may seem like we're just a few, but we're not. We, we are real people and we're stronger than we know. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And in fact, the censorship of Russia Today and various other Russian channels, to me, is a, is a sign of real change in that the reason they were censored is because in relation to the Ukraine war and a number of other topics, people were actively going to look there to find a different perspective because yeah. they're starting to realise that the mainstream media in Britain and America is just putting out junk. It's completely yeah. one-sided propaganda. So I think there is this increasing awareness especially among young people. And for me, I am becoming more and more optimistic by the day. Absolutely. And if people want to know how they can get involved in system change, join the resist movement. We're in the process of registering to become a new political party. And we need you on board. We need your ideas. We need your um, expertise, your skills, anything that you can offer to help this new movement and this new party get off the ground. Because we have to change the system for the youngsters, for our, our children, our grandchildren um, and the future. Um, and we, we want it to be a better place. Um, so get involved, um, bring your ideas and let's have these discussions. Anything you want to say with that, Lizzie? Well, for me, um, it's not just about uh, the resist movement and um, system change, the new party, though I welcome everybody on board. Um, also, speak to everybody. Get involved with Extinction Rebellion. Find out why you don't really like Just Stop Oil. Is it because mainstream media told you? To, to, to not like just stop oil they're they're the new uh the new meat face of insulate britain so the thing is right get involved with jubilee for for climate there the jubilee debt campaign which was um i'm trying to think of her name now the very famous economist lady who's who's been working with jubilee debt campaign forever since the since the 90s um, and get involved with that. Look them up and find out what they're doing. Get involved with XR trade unionists. If you're a trade unionist and you say to people, there's no such thing as climate change, get educated, pal, because there is such a thing. So, OG yeah. Rod, last closing words. Oh, sorry. I thought, <laughs> thought you were going to close. I didn't think you were coming. No, back. no, you close. I, I, no, no, I, have, I, have, I think we've had such a great conversation. And it's great the way it's broadened out into some of these ideas about system change that 
I think let's let's keep trying to to make sure we push that forward. Definitely. Well, I'd like to bring this to a close now anyway, because we've just hit the hour mark. I want to thank everyone for joining in the chat tonight. That's, you know, it's lovely that you join us every week and we're really building up a, a nice community here online. I want to thank Lizzie again and, and our resident academic, Rod. Thank you so much for all the work you put into uh, to the channel. And, and and the, the Without Deepa, we wouldn't have Rod. <laughs> yeah, and obviously Deepa is um, Rod's other half, uh, or sh should I say better half, other half? She would certainly say better <laughs> half. Can I just say, if people are still listening, so, um, so Deepa is off to Brussels tomorrow for a few days where there's a major Julian Assange event. So I imagine, I, I'm sorry I don't have the details um, but, but there'll be various kind of podcasts and um, so on. So she'll be giving a talk. So there are various groups of people in Europe who really are very much behind Julian Assange. So we, we need to keep working to try to get him free. He has yeah. been one of the most important figures in providing information, you know, in the last decade or so. Definitely. Fantastic that, note to end on. And with that, thank you so much for joining us tonight. And we'll be back again next Wednesday, same time, same place. See you then. Mm -hmm.